You're listening to the Games from She.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor and I'm joined this week by... Brendan Sinclair. Danielle Partis. Jeffrey Rousseau. We're going to be talking about the biggest stories from the past week from across the industry, starting with... Uh, the ongoing NFT backlash. Uh, it's it's kind of nice not having a massive industry-shaking acquisition to talk about just for a change. But equally, this is industry-shaking in its own way. Um, we're going to expand a bit on on Brendan's latest this week in business column. Uh, it's it's exploring a kind of a sentiment we've heard a lot about. Uh, I mean, Brendan, I'll pass to you to kind of summarise better than me me shortly. But like, essentially, NFTs are not popular. We have seen this a lot in the last few weeks, last few months. Um, we've seen developers and publishers completely backtrack on their plans for NFTs within days, sometimes hours, of announcing them. Um, the most recent and most prominent example is Team 17. They were going to do Worms NFTs through another game. Uh, when they announced this, I, th- I believe even like Team 17 employees were saying, we did not know about this, we did not agree to this. Partner developers who have published their games through Team 17 have said, look, we are absolutely not on board with NFTs, so we are not going to be working with you again and lo and behold two days later team 17 pulled out that's just the latest example like there have been plenty of examples of this happening and usually around the time that there's backlash i think the arguments against nfts are fairly well known at this point are fairly common we've certainly discussed them a lot but you always have the counter argument of well this backlash is just like it was when free to play People said that free-to-play was evil. People said that free-to-play was never going to take off and look at where the industry's gone now. And Brendan, you've written a, a brilliant piece on on why that, that argument doesn't quite hold up. So I'm going to pass to you. All right. um, so the one thing about the argument that is completely accurate, I think, is that uh, gamers often dig in their heels and complain about you know a change to... Uh, the the industry as they are familiar with it and it's not just free to play it was social games uh dlc and microtransactions even even things like hey nintendo is going after older people than the traditional demographic or trying to expand beyond the you know 12 to 35 year old male target audience like things there there are there are complaints about things that do anything that takes the focus off of you know that core gamer nfts are a little bit different from those other complaints i think though because a lot of the other ones uh like say free to play games everyone understood the upside to free to play it's like hey i don't have to pay money to try a game before i spend money on that that's that's fantastic i can you know it's like a, a demo sort of thing almost or doom's shareware idea uh it's the the upside is obvious to people now the downside was also pretty clear to a lot of people in the way that it would you know influence game design or in the way that free-to-play games as they existed at the time uh were not exactly great examples of you know dynamite gameplay uh, a lot of the, the facebook social games were really kind of you know obnoxious uh in in the way that they would pester everyone on the network for you know hey give me cabbages for my farmville farm or whatever so but like we could see the upside you know same thing with dlc and and microtransactions it's like oh i can you know, customize the visuals of my avatar. I can download new songs for Rock Band. I can, 
get new fighters for street fighter like these things were pretty clearly like oh okay that's that's cool but we're just worried about how you're going to implement it because we think it'll be really you know just greedy or that you'll take the experience that you're offering right now and cut it up into a bazillion different things and sell those things back to us instead of just giving us a full game for 50 or 60 dollars nfts doesn't really have that though blockchain gaming doesn't really have that because the the most clearly articulated upside that the advocates have put forward i think is the idea of like you own this in-game item and you can take it into other games and they will recognize that you have that nft and then they will grant you some kind of reward and the thing is like logistically once you think about how that is supposed to work it falls apart completely you know it's it's not like oh well you can take your this character from any game you want and suddenly put them into smash brothers or mario kart because that's not how video game development works uh and and after that the use cases that you hear from nfts are you can make money and and gamers have 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 seen what happens when people want to try and make money in in games before you know like game developers have too how many how many online games have have dealt with gold farmers in you know the past three decades uh two two decades and change now that we've had like mmos out there and and it's when people are playing the game for a profit incentive they're not playing it the way that someone plays it for fun and that impacts the the game world it impacts the economy in in the game world it it impacts the you know any kind of sense of community uh among the fans it creates divisions between like the types of players playing for different kinds of reasons and publishers i think have understood this for quite a while which is one of the reasons why they have tried so hard to keep any kind of real world value uh out of out of the their games and nfts is yeah, you look at it from every angle and it it's basically just like oh well the publishers see that here is something that they can put into their games that has uh maybe minimal liability added to the to them and but they still get a cut of every you know every, every resale of of the nft as it as it passes on and i it's different from the backlash um against these other things because it's not just backlash about you know money and greed it's it's also backlash about it undermining the player experience and about it just destroying the environment um because it's it's tremendously wasteful and any kind of blockchain or nft activity that you are pursuing right now is going to benefit ethereum and bitcoin and interest in cryptocurrencies and the blockchain market at large and the biggest parts of blockchain right now are on these horribly wasteful chains and the fact that you are you are doing this it's it's not like it's not like ea could have the battlefield series for people that wanted their 
you know, first person shooter console stuff and then roll out Battlefield Heroes on the side as a free to play thing and not get too much backlash about it because, hey, we still have our Battlefield. You know, if that's what you want, you still have it. It's just this other thing that they're doing on the side or they've opened a new division to explore this kind of thing. And the the thing with NFTs is the people that are against it, they don't they don't just want NFTs to not be in their game. They don't want NFTs to be in any games because in addition to all the the drawbacks and problems that are already, you know, articulated here and the preponderance of scams and the lack of consumer protections and the overall complexity of it. Uh, in addition to like getting all of that in the games, then there's there's this really clear moral reason why you don't want this technology to take hold, at least not in its current form. And I don't see, even if you're using like a, a you know, uh, a proof of stake chain or something that's less environmentally disastrous, it, it all it all goes to build this NFT blockchain fad. And the fad is, is so driven by proof of work chains and everything. I, I don't see how you like have a chain that is not horribly wasteful, have that become successful and at the same time undermine and replace Ethereum and, and Bitcoin instead of just further boosting it. Um, oh, and then also, you know, you've got like the, the shortages on GPUs because everyone's buying up those for Ethereum mining, uh, things like that. And shortages on, you know, PlayStations and every other kind of hardware uh, in, in the last couple of years. Like even, even if it's not directly shortages caused by demand for mining gear, it's, it's, there's a lot of confusion there about how much uh, and what kinds of, of the tech can be used for, for mining that, you know, people just look at it and say, like, I can't get the thing that I want. I know that these mining rigs are, are buying, buying up tons of the tech and they might just, you know, connect those two in their heads anyways. And yeah, you're, you're going to have people just upset about it because you've given them a million reasons to not want it to exist and like almost none to welcome it. I mean, it's, it's just like, it, it's the get rich quick dollar signs in your eyes kind of, you know, fantasy is, is the big upside here with, with blockchain and NFTs. And I think that's, a, I think that's different. I think it's fundamentally different than, any of these other trends where people were like, ah, I don't like this. I don't see the appeal of it. But, you know, if you just, as long as I get to still have my games the way they are, I don't really care that you're doing this on the other, with the other thing. Right. So I think about the net marble story that we, we ran where, um, and I recall, you know, the, the whole, the larger, business point was just that this is a new point of revenue for us you know and um and i recall how the um company founder said that um 
you know, he says something to the effect of, you know, yeah, this is, you know, definitely a, a new business venture uh, for us. And, you know, it's not the first time that they've, quote unquote, dabbled in it. But, you know, it, it was the first time that they said specifically we're going to, you know, ha we have these new games coming out. A number of them are definitely going to be NFTs and blockchain. And, you know, we we look forward to what, what, what follows after. So, you know, that that's something I always think about, you know, reading Brendan's piece and, you know, his thoughts on this is that it, it let's be honest, it's really just like, hey, OK, this is just another pool for us to just make more money. But obviously, it's not that simple. Of course, you know, nothing is ever that simple. Um, not to undersell that. Um, yeah, it's just one of those things. Every time I read the comments and, and the sentiments behind that, you know, is that just it? <laughs> Who's to say? Yeah, there's there's not that argument of, to okay, well, it makes you money, but what else is the benefit that we can't already do with tech anyways? But like the, the one thing that I want to say there is it's not just like, we're going to have a certain number of our upcoming games be blockchain powered. Netmarble said that like 70% of their upcoming catalog, they got like 20 games, I think. Like 14 of them are going to be blockchain games. And that's that's not dabbling and that's that's that is going, you know, whole hog in in into this. And and that is that's concerning. I mean, the, the industry is never, has never been shy about embracing something and completely going forward with it with blinders on and figuring, well, problems will crop up and we'll fix them later. We'll fix them when it, when it happens. Um, but this is, this is not something that you can or should do that with, I don't think. It's interesting seeing all the companies go back and forth as well, like not just in terms of, you know, Team 17 and Stalker and other companies that have announced an NFT thing and then cancelled the NFT thing within a few days or hours or whatever, but even like the way that statements change. So, Brendan, you highlighted this in um, This Week in Business. Andrew Wilson, CEO of EA, November during the financial, you know, the earnings call, talking about how essentially he said that NFTs are going to be a future or the future of the industry on a go-forward basis. And then because there's been so much backlash since, he's already kind of toned that down to us. Like, well, I believe that collectability is going to be an important part of the industry, whether that's NFT and the blockchain, well, that remains to be seen. And this is the thing, like, I, I, I've seen quite a few columns and articles and so forth saying, but like, okay, yes, NFT, NFTs at the moment are a scam and should be shunned. But the basic principle of, here is something you can collect and own. That is going to be something that is, you know, like NFTs are going to find a way to work in the industry at some point in future. And I understand the concept of, yeah, like players wanting to own their digital goods and wanting to have value to those digital goods. I understand the the, the appeal, but it's just, I don't see it happening in practice. Like we're talking, it's it's not like another another example people always give is like, you know, Horse Armor DLC, you know, was it 2000 Microsoft points, which I think was like 20 quid back in the day for just horse armor for your um for your for your horse <laughs> like i think you are drastically overstating the cost of horse armor dlc i think it was a <laughs> few hundred microsoft points it was like three or four bucks i think it was i definitely remember it being higher i remember it being higher because I, I, I remember it being just an absurd 1600 microsoft points was 20 bucks 
two thousand. They're not charging twenty five bucks for horse armor. I'm I'm gonna look this up afterwards, but I'm I'm almost certain. Maybe not twenty bucks. But it was definitely in the. Like, it was definitely a four figure sum for horse armor. Like in terms of um, Microsoft points, it was definitely a four figure sum from what I remember. The point was. People complained that that was overpriced, and DLC found its footing, and eventually you got to the stage where DLC was reasonably priced. And you know, DLC you reasonably priced expansions for the game, where you got entire areas and new weapons, new quests, and so forth. Like DLC found a way. People keep on insisting that NFTs will find a way, but I'm not convinced. Like to go back to what you were saying earlier, Brendan. Like obviously, the, the, there's always it boils down to two appeals um, for players. Like you know, two ways they try to win players over. A, you will be able to make money from this, and B, you'll be able to take your items across different games. The amount of developers I have seen that have done some brilliant threads on Twitter explaining in undeniable detail as to how this doesn't work. Apologies if I mentioned this on the show before, but there was an excellent thread that someone did about making a dice. Simple things like making a dice, a cube, one of the simplest objects you can develop in a game and the fact that just transferring that dice into other games where there are different engines different physics different measurements different metrics different everything at work and the dice instantly ceases to not only function but even be rendered like this is what people don't understand and developers are desperately trying to explain and yet executives and investors and all the people who are talking about nfts aren't listening Mm. This was something I encountered um, last week, actually, when I spoke to the founders of Social First, which is um, a studio from former uh, mobile studio Kokori uh, executives. And they said that their goal was to add value across titles with um, with items uh, and, you know, things that basically tie to a player's identity across their games. Um, and I guess if you are a studio and you're making you're making all of the games that these nfts are going to be in and you have complete control over their ecosystem then um fair enough but then they also said that um they're game developers and they make games and they're not, they're not making a blockchain platform so there is again no real value in making that into an nft thing when it could just be a a, a purchasing option you know it doesn't doesn't have to have the crypto element you could just have something that spreads across the games that people can buy like they would buy DLC. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crack out the Pokemon example again, but as far as I'm aware, you are able to transfer Pokemon from like two or three generations past into Pokemon Home and then into Sword and Shield or whatever you know, like whatever latest games are, and none of that requires crypto. You have generation-spanning Pokemon, and none of that requires crypto. And all of those are unique because they have their own unique, uh, their own unique ID number, which is the equivalent of your... Ghost Recon trousers ID, yeah, like serial number on on the trousers, um, and they've got their own unique stats and moves and so forth. And they, you know, they're, they're branded with. I, th- I believe they still have like the original trainer's name on them. No crypto involved. No NFTs. No blockchain. It just works, and it doesn't kill the world. And the reason devs don't do this more commonly is because it's a bit of a pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it <laughs> for for everything that crypto does, it it does not really make it less of a pain. Um, one interesting thing about the the backlash, I think, is is how uh, the developers are getting into it as well. Like with Team Seventeen and their development partners, mm. uh, kind of throwing them under the bus, or with Andrew Wilson and, the, and uh, his comments, or with EA CEO Andrew Wilson. Uh, there was a company Slack Kotaku reported on uh, a company Slack chat in December, where he. You know, laid out the plan for 
NFTs. And then uh, because it was a channel where employees couldn't respond except through emojis, they basically dogpiled him with, uh, you know, like no NFT emojis and stop sign and do better and and all kinds of stuff by like a, a ratio of five to one, maybe about the the negative emojis to the to the like, yes, you know, rocket to the moon or whatever kind of support supportive emojis the developers are giving. And that's that's shocking to me because I don't think the, the pushback to these previous uh, trends that people talk about. I, I don't think it was as uh, widespread negative among developers as it was among gamers, consumers. Um, and I also don't think that we would have seen, you know, hundreds of developers openly telling their CEO to take a hike, you know, even within the, the, the company Slack chat, it's especially when, you know, that that kind of pushback could damage your standing in the industry. Like one of the corporate communications uh, people in in the Slack uh, responded in a, in a channel about it saying like, hey, well, I think it's totally inappropriate that, that people would, you know, uh, shame their CEO like that. Let's, let's see how many of these people's uh, employee ID cards still work come, come uh, January. And, and, like that's the, they didn't need to joke about it because uh, employees typically understand the the lines of uh, where criticism uh, interior to the company is is tolerated and and how it's tolerated, but there did not seem to be a whole lot of uh, hesitance among those developers mm. in that Slack channel, and and that that doesn't sound to me to be all that different from you know. I've seen so many developers on Twitter with their their employer's name in their profiles, you know, just like publicly slagging off on the idea of NFTs and blockchain gaming, you know, even if they happen to work at like Ubisoft. And it's I don't think that we would have seen this before. And I don't I'm I'm unsure that it's necessarily a function of people just being this aggressively against uh nfts um but i also think that there's there's an element in there of this is just sort of the way the world is now people are a little a little less uh reserved about you know telling others to shove it um or or a little more upset and frustrated with you know the power dynamics as as we've come to understand them because they so often just, you know, work to to hurt people that don't have power. So, you know, there, there's, I don't know. I, know. I know I have a whole lot less tolerance for for looking at something um, like the Activision Blizzard lawsuits and the, the corporate response to them or, or Ubisoft and Eve Gilmo still being in charge after everything that he oversaw uh, at that studio. Like I, I just can't be bothered to to tiptoe around that stuff anymore. It's like if it's if it's you know if it needs to be pushed back against, uh, yeah. I'll, I I I wonder if it's if it's not just me and not just these hundreds of EA employees, but if there's just kind of a a wider uh, acceptance in the industry of pushback is necessary 
because things haven't been working. You mentioned Ubisoft, and I'm going to take us on a slight tangent here. Um, because uh, Brendan and Jeffrey, you've only only logged on like a couple of hours ago. I'm intrigued to get the team's reactions on the report that's going around that Ubisoft has awarded uh, Quartz or Digits, sorry, no Digits, which is their NFTs, a Ghost Recon 20th anniversary cap to members of the breakdown. Uh, yeah, breakdown, breakdown, breakpoint, breakpoint team. So following the launch of um, Ubisoft Quartz, which is their NFT blockchain platform, and the Digits, which is those you know unique serial trousers we were talking about for Ghost Recon Breakpoint. Um, they have reportedly sent out to staff an internal statement with the opening of this. Uh, we thought of creating an exclusive digit for you, the Ghost Recon 20th anniversary cap. If you want to receive this exclusive digit, uh, we will inject it into your crypto wallet on the 9th of March. Now, I bring this up because my initial reaction to this was, and I grant you this is a hypothetical situation, but it doesn't seem that far-fetched to me, we could be in danger. If NFTs do take off, which I'm fairly confident they won't, not in, the, not in their current form, we could get to the stage where employee bonuses are NFTs that tie you into your, you know, that are tied into the company's ecosystem already. So, you know, rather, yeah, I agree. I, I agree with that moan. Like, rather than, but, but this is the thing. This is an insight to that. Rather than giving them, say, a bonus, you know, a cash bonus or a pizza or, you know, a real cap. They have given them an in-game cap that is tied to their platform. And I think that's, I personally think that's stupid. I mean, if that's in addition to other bonuses, maybe. But we just, I, I don't know. I was getting horrific visions of in future. Like if you want to, if you if you are rewarded by your company, you know, I know Rockstar giving all the people that crunched on GTA 6 as exclusive NFT for GTA Online 2. But as soon as you leave the company, you have to sell that NFT. I don't know. It just seems like a, a weirdly dangerous precedent. And I don't know why. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. It just seemed like a bad idea. Brendan, your groan suggests you yeah. agree. I'd, I'd, I'd like to expand on the groan, if you will. No, that is that is absolutely... Like, I, I saw the, um, the Ubisoft free hat for developers thing as uh more more of a way to just get more people into crypto because they would have mm. to you know set up a wallet go through all that hassle and then have it in there and then like maybe they just hold on to it and then like oh if it's worth money i can sell it later but the idea of companies just doing this specifically because they can you know they know that there would be demand for this because there is. I mean, we just had someone leaving Activision Blizzard recently um, and auctioning off like all of their employee bonuses and freebies and loyalty stuff because there's a Blizzard fandom out there that is willing to pay for that. Um, and if NFTs take off, we know that these companies have fandoms anyways, and that is... That is a way that they could monetize the fandom in a really, I mean, I mean, they wouldn't even have to report it as compensation necessarily at first anyways, until the law caught up with it. Uh, and, and so they, they wind up just, ah, just shifting more and more of the, the compensation they should be giving their employees and just offloading that to, you know, 
NFT suckers and gamblers like here, you can compensate them. You can give them the hundreds of dollars, the $5,000 bonus or whatever, because we gave them a rare NFT. And that's, uh, that's disgusting. And I have no doubt that, uh, there are some some companies that would uh, love to love to pursue that. Something there there you have to just sit back and think about what's being said if your employer is offering you something like blockchain or NFTs as part of you know instead of you know salary or stocks or what have you when so many people have been decrying why that market's highly volatile not good for the environment and all these things and your employer is just like yeah here you really have to sit down and think about what the what those implications are just like james said and what they might be in the future i got a block of fudge once for a holiday bonus and Honestly, um, if I got an NFT, it would it would still easily be the worst holiday bonus I've ever, ever received. <laughs> We're also going to talk about this week's Sifu and a, a slight controversy that's evolving around this. So uh, Sifu is a Kung Fu Brawler sort of game that's coming out for PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, and PC. It's actually coming out tomorrow, so February 8th, day that we're recording it's tomorrow. Um, one of the conversations that's coming around it is uh, there have been images shared of a press kit or, or an influencer kit that's been sent out, so it's a copy of the game with bonus stuff. And all the bonus stuff very much kind of ties into Chinese culture, so it's like a teapot and some ornamental beads and incense sticks and all these sort of things. And... This has not gone down well because obviously there's, a, there's an article that's going around, I believe it's by The Gamer, that emphasises the fact that the bulk of the team behind Sifu, if not all of the team behind, behind Sifu, certainly all the kind of the senior team behind Sifu, are white developers. And it's very much kind of this, well, should white developers be cashing in on other cultures or, or, or playing up to other culture stereotypes and so forth? I wanted to talk about this on the team, just kind of gauge your reactions um uh, get your thoughts on this because i i think there's arguments either way i think there's a very strong argument one way obviously but i think there's arguments either way does anyone anyone kind of talk about their thoughts on this sure um i'm i'm a little torn on this uh like i i really like kung fu movies like i used to have a ridiculous collection of them and I, I think a, a lot of what kind of first sort of got me into them uh, was things that were kind of almost certainly guilty of, of what Sifu uh, is, is being accused of right now. Things like uh, Mortal Kombat and Big Trouble in Little China. Um, and uh, after, you know, kind of immersing myself in the the sort of uh kung fu inspired media here uh in in the west i i started to seek out more of like actual um kung fu movies and uh and a lot of 
you know, that, that kind of led to looking into Hong Kong cinema more generally. Um, so it's, it's weird for me to, to like think, well, this is, so it's weird for me to like completely decry it when, you know, a lot of stuff that I've really loved and appreciated has still, you know, kind of come from basically the same sort of, uh, origins. But I still, I like, I look at it and, and I see that it's a lot of attention to the, um, surface of, of what you might, uh, see in, in Kung Fu movies and such. And, and no, not much real care regarding the underlying substance. But when you don't do the research and, and you don't really you know, bring on people to create something with the same kind of substance as what you're going for. You're really just, I think you're, you're sort of, you know, fetishizing it. You're taking someone else's culture and, and just kind of like treating it like a fun costume. And the same way that, you know, I think a lot of the uh, Halloween costumes that, that people have worn over the years uh, that are sort of belittling uh, or stereotyping another culture and then just kind of treating it as something that you put on for fun uh, with no regard to the substance of it. I, I, it, it feels sort of the same to me. Um, but instead of just being like, you know, some costume you picked up for to wear one night at a party... It's a project that you worked on for years and put a lot of effort and money into. Um, at the same time, like I don't, I don't think anyone should necessarily be like you know completely prohibited from making a game about a culture that's that's not their own. I think you just need to uh, be mindful when you when you do it. Bring on people where possible. Uh, educate yourself about that culture and and try to try to you know make it substantial because if you're if you're just boiling it down to like oh we're gonna have a you know a monk with a really long beard and then there's gonna be like a drunken master dude and let's put a ninja in there um you're you're just sort of I don't know, boiling, boiling away any of the substance of it and just coasting by on the style. Yeah, I think that was the the main thing that I wanted to to bring up was the the press kit alone. Um, as you mentioned earlier, James, is that I think that what I took away from that wasn't that it was a cool thing that was celebrating a culture. It was um, a marketing tool where all of these cultural objects had been like shoved into this box to promote something and that didn't sit right. But I think that in itself is a, a clumsy marketing decision that sits separately from whether uh, studios should or can make uh, games inspired by these cultures. Um, that to me always speaks of um, the disconnect between marketing and PR and the development and the actual intention of the development team. Because I guarantee no one at the studio who made Sifu will have had any kind of input to that press kit. 
any any kind of influence on what was included in that. The example, the other example I'm thinking of is um, uh, the PR agency for Sniper Ghost Warrior Contracts Two, who did that awful press event last year where they took a bunch of American journalists and inter- influencers to a shooting, like well, like mm-hmm. a, a mock shooting gallery, kind of like a paintball, but you know, bigger with much more convincing guns, and all the bad guys were dressed as Arabs and you know the the motivation was these people have killed good Americans and like there's the the uh, the publisher which is based in Europe came out and said we absolutely were not involved in that like we we had trusted an agency with that we apologize we need to take more responsibility but it just it speaks to that disconnect with how a game is promoted and how a game is actually developed like there is there is a disconnect there this isn't just about the promotion though no, it's not. I, no, I, I mean, yeah. I, the 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 Sifu box that they sent around to the press has kind of like gotten a lot of traction and attention. Um, but I, I I think especially when you look at the like rise in anti Asian violence in the last few years, when you know you had the the shooter in Georgia um, just targeting Asians, like the the stereotypes around. Um, various cultures are are harmful and and they are they they play a part in contributing to you know the dehumanization of of people and boiling them down into caricatures and and caricatures are easier to then justify you know violence against or or just mistreatment and for people who have spent the last few years um since since the advent of coronavirus, I think, being particularly keenly aware of the way the Western world views them sometimes. Uh, I, I think seeing seeing a group of developers uh, make make a game based on these caricatures without, you know, w- without apparently doing due diligence onto the you know the the sort of the substance of of what it is that they are uh bringing over into their game like that's i i can see how that would be you know particularly upsetting or offensive and i i haven't played the game i'm not i'm not saying that they completely botched it or horribly you know were horribly offensive in it but it's you know it's also not really my opinion on that doesn't doesn't matter as much as as other people's and uh if if they're if they're going to tell you like hey this isn't cool um then i'd 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 like for developers to listen like you can still make any kind of game that you want to make about whatever subject you want to make or whatever culture but you also have to understand that other people can take exception to this and they will say whatever they want to say about your game. Um, and the less considerate you are with the one thing, the, you know, the, the less friendly you can expect the feedback to be. We'll clarify as well that like, this isn't just Sifu. Sifu is the, like, the, the current example that, we were talking earlier about because I, I was asking like why is this ha- what well, I'm more aware of the conversation around Sifu than I was around go to 
Ghost of Tsushima. Ghost of Tsushima was made by Sucker Prime Productions, which is a US studio, almost certainly predominantly white blokes, and therefore like doesn't necessarily have that consultation, doesn't have that, that element of authenticity that you'd want from a game that explores a key part of another culture. And I I thought that had escaped criticism, but apparently not. I like there's um I, someone pointed me the article this morning that uh, Yakuza creator Toshihiro Nagoshi like you know he praised the game but said like someone from Japan should have made this game this game should have been made in Japan and I can I can it's like Brendan says like I, I can see it both ways like you absolutely want people making games about their own culture and particularly those from underrepresented cultures in games making games of their own cultures and we've seen a lot of that from the indie space which is great you've got things like Raji and Ancient Epic um way back in the day you had El Shaddai which was trying to you know explore you know different cultures there and that's great, but those teams are usually quite small. If you want to get uh, other cultures or, or games set in other cultures in you know of a higher profile, inevitably that's going to fall on larger studios. The larger studios are inevitably based in the West or based in um, you know America, particularly, and it are inevitably primarily white blokes. This is a diversity issue we've been talking about for a long time on games and biz, and indeed as an industry. So I kind of you don't want to stop those teams from making these things, but as Brendan says, quite rightly, like they need to have the right level of consultation, like or bringing in experts, getting people involved in these projects to kind of help lead them and steer them. Not necessarily because they're going wrong, but just to kind of make sure that they do go right. And I just I I'm hoping the more this conversation happens, the more that that's avoided in future, because I still want to see like kind of big budget games like Ghost of Tsushima or you know medium to big budget games like Sifu still happen but without the the shortcomings yeah the the well researched argument doesn't really hold up for me because i think all that does is give a, a team that isn't as diverse you know the room to say look we we put thought into this and we put a lot of research into this and it just seems like that's a good way to circumnavigate actually hiring the people that would be best to it's you know make a game about a certain culture or a you know a certain minority and then that just plays into the the diversity issue that we keep having in the studios just find ways to not hire the people that they should be hiring that was like half a thought <laughs> no, that was good that was, that was a good so the conversation uh revolving around sifu and the team I preface this, of course, by saying I, I of course, am not Asian, but you should definitely see what um, what Asian um, critics and folks within the industry are saying just to get a better understanding of the conversation. Uh, but when I look at what's happening with Sifu, I ask, so what what it, what it, what exactly are, are we taking issue with? Because there's two things. There have been many games, much like Sifu, like, it was said earlier where they are games that necessarily do not represent the development team and you know it's either from an um you know appreciating or admiring a culture and thus it gets created or are we taking issue with the fact that it is now 2022 and we're we're kind of I don't want to use the word tired, but we're we're just very mindful of the fact that having all white development teams keep making games like this is a problem. Now, to be fair to to the seafood scene, they are not the first. 
I don't, I, I really even doubt they're the first development team that released a game like this, even even in a year. Um, I think a few months back, I, I think some other studio. But anyway, I'm rambling. So studios from indie, midsize, and AAA, a lot of studios <laughs> represent like what's happening with seafood. Either it would have been, you know, characters that are are Latinx or or are black or what have you. The studio just doesn't represent doesn't really represent even the cast of characters within the game outside of the voice actors it, it, it's it's still you know there's a disconnect if we were but the conversation i think that that brings credence is that were this game developed in the east you know and and, and the team was representative of what teams normally look like there I don't think we would have a conversation like this regarding that, right? But then when you think about that, that's because people of that background and those cultures created the game, right? So the thing with Sifu here, and this is, there's really no nice way for me to say this, but I'll just flatly say this. Even if you do create a game that culturally doesn't represent where you're from, and you do have consultants, and they, you know, help you try to make the best product that you have. The thing that I want people to think about is that you can't keep using that as a defense or an excuse. I'm not accusing anyone um, that may. But the problem is when you when you keep doing that, you're creating this. It, it's just this cycle of this conversation. That's why the needle isn't really moving is that you're having consultants, right? But the team itself people who are fully employed who are staffed still don't represent what you see in that game yeah so i, I i'm sorry i you're gonna make a point go ahead uh, no i was just agreeing with you i think that was the point i was trying to make but said it really badly but you made it a lot better though in that the consultancy is cool but it's not r changing the dynamic of a team of a proper team but you carry on all right and and, and thank you um and, and yeah, like Daniel said, it, it's what what we're seeing is that now it's okay for everyone. Well, most people people have been saying this for decades, but now most people are saying, okay, we're 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 kind of taking some issue with this, and you know that's understandable. I, for example, um, if I wanted to create a game about um, a certain black culture, I'm not a part of. I would in no way would be able to handle that properly unless I had people of said background who were part of that project from ground up, from like start to finish. Because what happens is that, you know, um, things could just get lost to the wayside. And, you know, going back to what Brendan was saying is that, yeah, you know, you could totally be into this. And we, we and, and I'm pretty sure all of us, we're, we're not saying that you should never buy these games or what have you that that create these conversations what we're asking is that these conversations come up because there's something to be said there's something for us to think about that possibly will lead to future works where <laughs> this will be a conversation right um i encourage people to google the development teams of whatever you're into more often because what that'll do and what that that's also made me do is think more about why do I feel uncomfortable with this? And I start asking myself questions and more questions. 
it's fine to create a a product or art of something that you appreciate obviously you know games wouldn't exist if that wasn't the case but we really have to start examining and asking ourselves what what would be preferable right do do we just want people who are like not even a part of this culture to just completely do it and even though i say that we'll probably see another game or two or three or four that'll bring up this conversation again this year who who's to say but i i think we should keep asking these questions so we could better challenge ourselves and then the industry at large also i don't think consultancy <laughs> is the answer to to deflect this it, it, i it's really not if there was anything i wanted to say about this in particular it's that consultancy i do not believe is, is a defense more so i think that just that's kind of softening a blow that's that's still a point that's being made that is all we've got time for this week thank you so much for joining us you can find previous episodes of the podcast on the podcasting platform of your choice and you can find more news insight and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz oh um by the way i don't know if you saw the the link that i put into slack there James, but uh, horse armor was $2.50 at launch. That's a good way to bring really? it back around. <laughs> yeah. Where did you get like 20 bucks from? Are we talking about like I, the I, Smile, Shivering Isles expansion? No, I'm definitely talking about, okay, maybe it wasn't 20 bucks, but I definitely remember horse armor being more expensive because I remember there being a joke, like they did an April Fool's where, or an April Fool's sale or something where they, they cut all Oblivion um, DLC in half. Like price, they cut the price in half, but they doubled the oblivion, the 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 horse armor price to take as a kind of a self-deprecating joke, or yeah, you know, yeah, a self. I swear it was more expensive than that. I'm sure even the DLCs I, 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 weren't twenty quid when they came out. They were maybe close, but I, maybe not maybe not twenty quid. But I definitely remember them being at the at the time they were the most expensive DLC that had come out because people were taking the piss. The, uh... Apparently, the, yeah, the direct Dragon Ball DLC cents. was thirteen pounds when it came out. I withdraw my remark. <laughs> if this somehow makes it to the end of the podcast or something, I apologise. I have been misrepresenting horse armor all these years. <laughs>